Well, we've been on this topic, everybody's favorite topic. We've been on the topic of, of self-discipline, self-control. So I like the phrase self-mastery. I, that's kind of a, I like the, the choice of word self-mastery. And we saw that in order to really let self-control do its work, we need to build faith. We need to build faith towards the rewards, the promises of God that we're moving towards. And it's one thing to say we need to have faith, but then I was thinking we really didn't talk about how to do that. So today we're going to talk about that, how, how to see that reward. So today I just called this seeing self-control's reward, seeing the reward of self-discipline. So that's, that's what our goal is. How can we see that by faith? How can we have faith in that and see it? Because when you can really see something, you have a much better chance of reaching it when you can really see it really deep in your heart. So faith helps build that for us. Now there's a cycle that we all go through. I go through it, you go through it. Same cycle for all of us. And it, it works like this. You, you have a desire for something. Uh, maybe it's to achieve something or to become something or, or to acquire something or whatever. It's, it's, it's some kind of goal or dream that you have. And so you start thinking about it. And when you start thinking about it, it kind of builds some energy inside you and you get excited. You get some inspiration. You get some motivation. Maybe even you sense that little shot of adrenaline hit you and you go, man, I know I've got this now. I know in my core, my core, this is a done deal. It's going to happen. And it could be concerning anything. It can be things like becoming the person of prayer you want to be. It could be about, you know, having a little emergency fund. So if something breaks down, it's not a financial disaster. It could be uh, you know, building a better marriage. It could be learning God's word more thoroughly and being an effective witness. I mean, it could literally, promotion at work, uh, being physically fit or eating healthy, you get it. It could be anything. And so you start thinking about that and you, you think about the end result, the reward, you get all motivated and you're excited and you're, you are for sure that it's done until, until you come crashing into the displeasure of self-denial. Now, I don't know if you all ever experienced this, but when Darlene and I were first married, we had a young family. The, the saying, I don't know if it's all over the world, but it's around here, we didn't have two nickels drubbed together. You ever, you ever been there? Somebody say, I'm there right now. <laughs> didn't have two nickels drubbed together. So we barely made it from week to week. And so when something would happen, like say one of our tires would go bad on our car, it just felt like a satanic attack against our finances because how are we going to pay for that? We barely make it from week to week. And the truth is it wasn't a satanic attack. The things wear out. You got 40,000 mile tires on your car. You've gone 60,000 miles on it. You really should praise God you got 20 extra thousand miles out of it. But it just felt so overwhelming because how are you going to afford a tire for a car when you can't barely make it from week to week? And so sometimes people go, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to establish an emergency fund so that if a tire goes bad or the water heater breaks down, it's not a financial catastrophe to us. And so you get the dream for that. You say, that's what I'm going to do. You get excited. You know next time something happens, you've got the resources to take care of it without breaking the bank or having to borrow or do whatever. So you're going for that. And it's really great, again, until you experience the pain of, of self-denial. Because you start thinking to yourself, I don't know of any rapid income that's going to come our way. Maybe in the future we'll have more money and more stuff, but right now, what are we going to do? So then you start thinking, oh no, we're going to cut back. <sighs> Who wants to cut back on anything? 
So you're thinking, I need a, a little emergency fund, but you decide to turn on the TV. When you turn on the TV, your screen pops up with all kinds of streaming services. There's Netflix, and there's Disney Plus, and there's Apple Plus, and there's Hulu, and there's whatever else is out there. And you start thinking, you know, if we would cut back on some of these streaming services, we would have more money every month. But you just think maybe that's the devil speaking to you because how would you ever live without Hulu or Netflix or something like that? I don't know what we would do. And then you go, okay, let's think of a different idea. And then you think, well, you know what? Both of us, we go out to lunch. We don't eat exotic, but we go to work and we both go pick up a lunch. And that adds up. I mean, I don't know if back when I was younger. And let me tell you the story. When I was a kid, this is how old I am. When I was a kid, I used to go to McDonald's and my parents would take me. And for one dollar, one dollar, I could get a Big Mac, a small fry, and a small Coke, and get like three cents back. I know, I'm 135 years old, but back then, it was, and that is old. Now you go get that, it's probably ten bucks. So you think, man, we're spending $50 a week a piece, that's $100. I know we'll just eat out one time a week, we'll brown bag it, and you think, oh, brown bag it, and now I've got to go shop, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to pack me a meal, and then finally, what happens is your inspiration for the emergency fund just kind of evaporates, and you say, forget about it, we'll just keep living paycheck to paycheck, because the dream wasn't motivational enough, it wasn't deep enough, it wasn't real enough that it would cause you to keep pressing through, and we have to change that. We have to get a real eye on the prize. And so one of the, one of the things that's so important, one of the principles of self-discipline, it's not the only one, but a key, one of the keys is this. You have to kind of believe that the joy, the, the reward of what you're going for will outweigh. Let's throw that slide up there. A key to self-discipline is building our faith and trust in, that the joy of obtaining the reward is far more fulfilling. It's far more gratifying than the lesser pleasures that we're having to say no to. So when the joy or the reward and our faith gets stirred up that, you know what, that really is the greater reward, then we can say no to the lesser pleasures. Paul did that. You can jot this down. We're not going to look to the verses. But in Philippians Three, I think it is, like 8 through 10, Paul lists all of his pedigree and how wonderful uh, his life was and how he gave it all up to follow Jesus. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. You better not drink that Gatorade. We'll go into overtime, so I'll stick over here. And there's always two people that want you to preach long, you know, while the rest of the crowd's going, don't pay any attention to her. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, what were we talking about? Okay, um, we, have to, we have to see that dream, we have to get it in our heart, and we have to build faith for that. And in order to do that, we learn lessons from the Apostle Paul, because he said, I've given up all these things for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Now I want you to see how he says this, if, we, if you take time this week, I'd say write it down, read Philippians 3. He doesn't say this, here's the way we sometimes come about it. I've had to give up so much to serve God. I guess it'll be worth it one day in the end. One day in the great by and by it'll be worth it. I know I'm going to live this substandard human life down here for Jesus, but one day it'll be okay. You don't see that in Paul. 
Paul says this, he says, I've given up all these things to follow Christ, and I consider everything I've given up garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Garbage, refuse, just nothing compared to surpassing grace. What happened? The, his, the faith and belief in the reward of knowing Jesus was so big that all these things that he bragged about, all these things were so precious to him at one time, now seem like garbage to him. And so that's the kind of faith that we want to build in our hearts and lives as we move forward. But what happens is you and I, we're both human beings, we have a pattern that we follow, and faith is an internal job. But we start thinking, I know this time I'm going to really reach that goal. I'm going to really become the person of prayer I want to be, or I'm really going to you know, mend that relationship, or I'm going to be a, say no to this sin, whatever it is. And we say, but it all becomes very focused on us individually. So we say, I will. My goodness, I will do it this time. I will make myself behave. I will dig down with some more grit and determination and make this happen. I will muster up the resolve in myself. I'm going to do this. And again, it might motivate you for a little bit, but it's really an inside job, not an outside job. Now, there are some people that's pretty good at that. Not a lot, but there are some people that's pretty good at personal self-discipline and self-control. But most of us, for the rest of us, we needed some change on our inside, and that's what we're going to go for. We're going to go for that reward on the inside and ignite Ignite this understanding of the reward and the promises of God so that something big happens on the inside of us so we can, we can go down that pathway using self-control. Self-control no longer will become a dirty word or a drudgery or a necessary evil. It'll become the perfect tool for getting the job done. If you ever work on anything and you got the perfect tool to do, it's like, oh, that's so good. And if you've ever had to work on something but you didn't have the right tool and you had to use, make some tool kind of work for it, it's a pain. And so the perfect tool, self-control is a beautiful tool for helping us move where we really want to go. The bigger, the bigger rewards, the bigger things in life, not the lesser things. So it generally isn't when we fail. It isn't a lack of willpower. It's more a lack of reward power because your will will always follow the reward you've set your eyes on. Last week we talked about, because we can all relate to this, you know, I, okay, I'm going to eat healthy. And so that's a big reward. If you've ever experienced not having health, you know how incredible it is to have health. Would we all agree that is a supreme reward to have health and vibrant health? So that's a big reward. And you say a lot of it's connected to maybe eating a little healthier. So you're motivated that way until... A buddy comes over with a deep dish large supreme pizza. And now there might not be anything wrong with one piece, but you want the whole pizza. And so, you, now what happens? Your will was towards reward of being healthy, but this reward of this pizza now steers your will this way, and you end up eating the pizza. It wasn't that there's a lack of self control, it's your self control followed what you saw is the reward, and the pizza became your reward. We all get that. We've all done stuff like that. So we got to dig deeper. We have to have something on the inside of us that helps us. So we want to strengthen our faith in the promises of God and the rewards of God. So we got to dig deep to this inner life. In Ephesians chapter 3, a guy named Paul who wrote a big portion of the New Testament, he calls it the inner man or the inner being. 
Now, Peter, one of Jesus' right-hand men, calls that the hidden man of the heart. I want you to know this, that this body that you and I are doing life in is not the real you. You are an eternal spirit. And your body, and this is not dismissing our bodies, our bodies are amazing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. These bodies are incredible gifts from God, but they really are earth suits. There's something that our eternal spirit wears while we're here on planet earth. And we lay those suits aside one day, but the real you continues to live. And so there's nothing wrong with appreciating and and honoring the body that God has given you, but your eternal spirit, every human being has an eternal spirit, but when our eternal spirit comes in connection with God, what we call being born again or saved or becoming a Christian, the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You have linked up once again with the God of the universe, and a transformation happens inside you. And so this inner you, guess what? It wants to do right. This inner you, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, Ephesians 4.24 tells us that this, this new creation in Christ, that it is actually created to be like God. Your spirit man is now recreated to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. So your inner man wants to be holy and your inner man wants to be righteous. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but have you ever had an experience where that didn't make its way to the outer man? We have, haven't we? And so we go, wow, what happened? There's a disconnect. What we need is we need the word of God to transform our brains and our bodies to follow after the will of our born-again spirit, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So I want to give you this little insight here as we go into the scriptures and we want to learn how to develop our spiritual life because everything flows out of your spirit. The Bible says, guard your heart. That's not your muscle in your chest. It's your spirit. Guard your spirit with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. That's what the scriptures teach. So we want to guard that, and we want to nurture it, and we want to, we want to make sure we're spiritually healthy. So I want to give you this little insight. I read this story, and I thought, wow, that reminds me of what happens to us in, in our faith sometimes. There's this guy named Mauro Prosperi. Now, Mauro Prosperi is an ultramarathoner. Now, an ultramarathoner are people who run distances further than a marathon. Now, a marathon is a little over 26 miles. And I always ask this because I'm always uh, curious about this. How many of you in here have run a full, and I know you might not have sprinted the whole thing, but you finished a full marathon. Would you raise your hand up high? There's one there, Molly. Yeah. Yeah. she, you, she's run a full marathon. She says she has, okay. In 33 years. In 33 years. I, I like meaning in like one event, but I, I get that. Uh, anybody else? We got any marathoners in here? Okay. Anybody done a half marathon? Hands up high. A few more have done a half a marathon. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I don't know if I've done a marathon my whole life, but anyway, there, it's a long way, 26 miles. It's actually about from where I live to here back again. I, I sometimes don't even want to drive it, let alone, you know, run the thing. I just like to transport here, you know, every day. So this guy's an ultra marathoner, and he's doing this endurance marathon. They have this marathon every year if you want to sign up for it, by the way. You can get online and find it. It's in the Sahara Desert. 
It's a six-day event, and you cover 160 miles. So in six days, you are running equivalent to a marathon every single day in the Sahara Desert. Now, there are checkpoints that you can go to, so they make sure you're still alive, and you get to these checkpoints. Well, he was running this marathon. A sandstorm came up, which is not unusual. It's a fascinating story. And uh, so they tell you what to do if a sandstorm comes up and how to hunker down and ride it out. And so, so Moro is, is, you know, doesn't want to do that because he's in seventh place from the last checkpoint, so he doesn't want to lose any ground. So he keeps running in the sandstorm, and then he decides, okay, I can't take it anymore. And so he hunkers down, rides it out. When the sandstorm stops, it's nighttime. He thinks, hey, I'll pick up some extra miles here at night. So he runs a lot through the night, and then he finally takes a break. And when the sun comes up, guess what? He's nowhere near the course. He can't even find the course. Then he sees these little mountains in the the distance and he knows that when you're coming down home stretch there's this little mountain range that's visible so he goes after the mountain range which is the wrong mountain range so he's out in Sahara Desert and he ends up finding this little mosque for a Muslim holy man who died they say they're scattered around the Sahara I don't know I've never been there and so he takes refuge in that and I mean he's I don't know if you know I mean, they have very little supplies this is the Sahara Desert And so in order to survive, he was so hungry and so dehydrated that he actually found these bats in there and he wrung their necks off and sucked the juice out of them and then ate them raw because he needed all the moisture. Anybody thinking about that for lunch today? Uh, And so he kept going on and on. It's a long story. It's, It's incredible. He finally gets so discouraged that he feels like I'm done. And so he writes a little note to his family that I'm done and I love you all and all this, and he goes to slit his wrist. He slits his wrist, but he's so dehydrated, he won't bleed. So he ends up barely surviving, nine days lost in the Sahara Desert. And you say, what does that have to do with it? Not a thing. I just thought that was the coolest story, and I wanted to share that today. Uh, now, when I read the story, I started thinking, Boy, you know, as Christians, sometimes we get so off the path. You know, a sandstorm blows up, something happens over here, something distracts us, we, we're chasing off to the wrong mountain range, we're doing all this stuff, and we, we end up spiritually emaciated and dehydrated when we ought to be strong and fit spiritually. And so I, I want us to keep our eyes on things that we need to keep our eyes on and not get distracted by everything as we grow in our walk with God. And so Paul writes to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, do not waste time arguing over godless myths or godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Now I'm going to I'm going to make a suggestion here. It's not what the scripture says here. I think what I'm going to tell you is good, solid scriptural advice. But not only don't argue over all these godless myths and and silly things and all that, but I also say don't spend an inordinate amount of time on Bible verses and ideas and things that really aren't going to help you spiritually. There's lots of fascinating things in the Bible that you can spend way too much time thinking about and pondering and reading about and listening to podcasts and hearing people's opinions about that will move you no further along in your walk with God. So I say stick to some meat and potatoes, some good milk and juice of the word of God and get strong in the Lord. Here it goes on to say physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better 
promising benefits, rewards, blessings in this life. I don't want you to miss that because there is a thing all the time about, well, you know, I'll endure this life as a Christian, but one day I'll be happy. I hope you're happy now. I hope you find joy in the Lord now, just like Paul did. I hope you find that. So there's blessings in this life and in the life to come. So it's a double win for those of us who are going after God. But I want you to know that not all scriptures are of equal importance. Now, that's a dangerous thing to say from the pulpit because sometimes people hear you say, Scripture's not important. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they're not of equal importance when it comes for your spiritual growth. Do you know if you went to the, the, um, the begats in the Bible, like so-and-so had so-and-so and so-and-so had so-and-so, you can read those, and they'll probably put you to sleep. And when you're done with it, you will not have grown spiritually at all. So now you could say, so Tracy, you're saying those begats aren't, Important? Yeah, I think they're very important. Here's one reason why they're important. Because what we're doing now, and what we believe, is not a fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time. You know what the genealogies tell us? This is real. This is historical. These are real people, real events. You can track that historically. This is real. So the begats have incredible benefit to the biblical story. But I've never read the begats and thought, I just want to go take the world for Jesus. I just, I'm going to say no to that sin over here. I'm going to be, I'm going to get in the, you know, I've never had that happen to me when I go through the begats. Who had who and who had who and who had who. There's some verses I just want to throw up here. Scriptures differ in their impact. In Genesis 5.24, there's this really cool verse. I love this verse. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. I read that and go, that is cool. That is fascinating. And I am a curious person. So I will say, what did he do to take him away? I mean, I think Elijah was like a whirlwind or a fiery chariot or something like that. I wonder what he did with Enoch. And I could invest my whole life studying that. And when I would be done, I would still not know because the Bible doesn't tell us. At best, it would just be speculation, something really curious and interesting and, and, and infatuating, but it wouldn't help me grow spiritually. But then you look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I mean, that verse can cause me to miss the horrors of hell, have the, the joys of heaven, find Jesus as my savior, understand God's great love for me. There's so much that can happen from that verse. So I want to encourage you, really, I, I don't mind you being curious. I don't mind you spending some time looking at stuff. I do that too. But don't waste a whole lot of time on things that aren't going to propel you to go after God and be all God's called you to be. So I want us to focus on the word of God that trains us to be godly. I want to focus on the word of God that builds our faith. Focus on the word of God that allows us to bask in the deep, high, wide, long love of God. I want us to Look at the word of God that lets us know my sins are forgiven forever. I want to look at the word of God where we understand that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness and to walk in godliness. I want to dig into the word of God where we can know that we have overcome sin and Satan and that we can minister life and hope and joy and peace and health and wholeness to ourselves, our family, our friends, our church family, the world around us, our classmates, our co-workers. I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because when we do that, there's transformation that happens. There is life change. And something begins to happen internally in us, not just externally. 
Now, ultimately, they all come together, but the real works of God are always internal. That's why he said, no longer will my laws be on tablets of stone, but I will write them on their hearts. Something will happen on the inside. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Something happens on the inside of some transformation on the inside, and then that works its way to the outside. It doesn't come from the outside in, it comes from the inside out. And so here, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, is talking to this Gentile church in, that he planted in Ephesus, and he starts out with this verse where we're going to pick up on verse 14, for this reason. Now, I hate starting out with that verse because for this reason says there's something else before it. So I'll give you just a quick little overview of what's before it. In the first 13 verses, Paul says this, oh my goodness, there's been a mystery revealed that's been hidden through the ages, but it's now been revealed through his holy apostles and prophets. That God kept this one close to his chest. He didn't really reveal it, but now it has been revealed. And here it is, that God took the Jews and the Gentiles, and in Jesus Christ, he brought them together and made them one family in Jesus. I don't want to skip in Jesus because that's the whole message of the gospel is in Christ. And he said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So if you want to do a spiritual genealogy, it'll wiggle all the way back to God the Father. He's made us one family. And then he starts this process, this this progression that's really powerful. So hang in here. It says, I pray that out of his, the his in this verse is God, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, his unlimited resources, God may strengthen you with what? Power through his spirit in your where? Inner being. So that God will strengthen us with power by the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that, there's a reason for this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, don't miss the power of those words. You see how strong those words are, rooted and established. This isn't casual, rooted and established in love. You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's how big the love of God is, it surpasses knowledge. I don't know if it's this popular anymore, but it used to be popular where, you know, you'd hear something you've never heard before and it'd just blow you away and we'd go, you know, mind blown. Yeah, well, you start meditating on the love of God and there will come a place where you just go, mind blown. I can't even get my whole mind around that. So, but we can grow and God can reveal things to us more and more and more. And he says this, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Wow. The New Living Translation takes that line like this. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What a wonderful thing to be filled with the life and power of God in our inner being. Now, is there any godly goal? Now, and I want to say this because I think we do a bad job in the Christian world of separating things between secular and spiritual when God wants to bridge those together. So, if you think of a godly goal, you would think, oh, a godly goal would be um, being better at prayer, studying my Bible more, sharing my faith, 
being more faithful at church attendance. I don't know, maybe, vo- maybe volunteering in the kids' ministry. That's a good one to throw out there. Those would be more godly goals. But you know, when we're believers and we have given our lives to Jesus, everything becomes spiritual. I really mean that, and I don't mean that in a weird, mysterious kind of way, but my work becomes spiritual. My home becomes spiritual. My relationships are spiritual. So if you had a goal and say, you know, I just want to be a better worker or a better student, and well, that's not real spiritual. Yeah, it is, you know, because everything we do reflects the glory of God. So we can be the best we can be, wherever that is, for the glory of God. So maybe it's getting healthier, getting fit, or, or making sure you do have a little more income so your family's taken care of. I don't know. All those things can become spiritual. As long as they're not ungodly dreams or visions, then they can be spiritual things that God wants us to have in our life. And what happens is, is there any godly goal that if you were filled with the power and the life of God that you couldn't reach? Now, again, I'm not talking about our fantasies or our whims or anything like that because I just want you to know I mentioned this on occasion just in case anybody wants to get this for me. But every time we drive somewhere, I think to myself, how convenient it would be to have a private jet. You know, I just think that would be, now that's just one of my little whims or dreams. If you are worth $100 million today or a billion and you want to get me one, but you got to take care of it all because I don't have the money to put the fuel in the thing, okay? But you got to take care of it all. Well, I'm not talking about those kind of things. I'm talking about what, what does, what's God speaking to your heart? What things should... Should you work on and allow him to do a work on the inner man? And so much of it revolves around understanding the love of God. See, I, I had really good parents who really loved me. And I, I mean this. I'm saddened if you did not experience that. Uh, but you have a really good Heavenly Father. And my parents would do about anything to help us, you know, achieve something that was within their power to do. And they were our biggest fans and cheerleaders and all that and God loves you so much more than my parents loved me God loves me more than my parents loved me and they were wonderful loving parents so when I begin to understand the love of God I start possibilities open up to me well maybe God really could use me in this maybe God really could help me overcome this or or accomplish that there's there's a passage where Jesus is saying this. He's revealing just God's amazing, crazy, unending love. And in John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me. Now, I want to stop there. As the Father has loved me. Do you think the Father had a personal love for the Son? It's not a trick question. Do you think it was passionate and deep and full and complete and everything you could ever dream of? Absolutely. Now listen to what Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You. Well, you can put your name in there. I have loved you. And he says, remain in my love. Now I just, this is my own little personal translation, and it's a biblical one. Jesus could have said, we could have interpreted it like this. Jesus said, Now, find your home in my love. That's what the word remain means. It means to abide or dwell. Find your home in my love. Are you finding your home in the love of God? If you're not, it's not to beat you up. It's to say, you know what, Lord? You can help me. Because we just read 
that you want to give me power and understanding that I might be able to grasp the love of God and how deep and high and wide it is, a love that surpasses knowledge, but you can help me. And so just call upon the Lord for help. Don't beat yourself up. Just grow in it. Grow. Jesus said, find your home in my love. So here's some ways to develop our inner faith and power so we can see that reward, see that promise of God. The first one I want to encourage you is to invest time in learning the Bible. There are so many benefits in the discipleship of learning the scripture. The the words, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. He sent his word and healed them. If we know the word and do the word, we'll be blessed in all of our deeds. Uh, It's honey to our lips, it's health to our bones. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There's probably a hundred verses that talk about the value of the word of God. And so I want to encourage you to invest some time in learning the Bible. Now, over the years here, we've had wonderful Sunday school programs. I was thinking about our adult class. Uh, Larry Schreier did a phenomenal job teaching that for years. And then Wayne Fravel stepped in and taught it for years. And then Larry Shelp stepped in and taught it for years. I mean, seasoned people in the Word of God. Now, we were without an adult Sunday school class for a little bit, but Gary Miller stepped in, and Gary and Shireen. And Gary is a seasoned Bible teacher that's teaching through the book of Matthew. Now, Here's a strategy. Gary and I were met this week and was talking about this. So here's a great strategy. We are approaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the last Sunday of March, which means it's six, seven weeks away. I mean, we'll blink and we'll be celebrating the resurrection. And simultaneously, his class in Matthew is, is wrapping up, and so we're starting to see the last days of Jesus' life. I think it would be a great primer to go sit in that class, prepare yourself for for resurrection. Also, it helps develop a a habit pattern of getting in the Word of God. And so that's 9 o'clock every morning over the Founders Chapel Cafe, come in, the doors turn left. Well, another thing is we talked about him teaching. He said, I'd I'd like to hit Genesis. I said, oh man, Genesis is awesome. Genesis is, I think it's a, I know it was written pre-Christianity, but my goodness, it just gives us the foundation of our faith. There's so much in Genesis. And so he's going to move out of Matthew into Genesis, and I would encourage you to be a part of that. Invest some time in studying the Word. Matthew shows us the heart of God in God the Son, and Genesis lays the foundation for what we believe and what we know. And so I just encourage you, be a, be a part of that, and invest some time in learning the Bible. It'll transform your life. Second of all, train yourself to be godly. Training yourself to be godly comes from knowing the Word. How do you know what to do if you don't know the Word? The Word gives us instruction. So when we start knowing the Word, I can start practicing, and you can start practicing, what should I say no to, and what should I say yes to? You can practice that every... You will have opportunities today to put that in practice, what you should say no to, what you should say yes to. So... Train yourself to be God. That's how you train yourself. And then the third thing is deepen your understanding of the love of God. These are three things that can help us build faith in in our inner man so we can get our eye on the reward, get our eye on the goal, and activate self-discipline in our lives to move us towards that. Deepen your understanding of the love of God. Now there's a passage, the whole chapter of Psalm 1, it's a short little chapter, talks about meditation. We're going to read two of those verses when we close here in just a moment. And I would encourage you, look at the benefits of meditating. Now, this isn't like some Eastern religion transcendental meditation thing. This is meditating on the Word of God, which means to ponder, 
to think about, to chew on, to mull over, to let it stay active in your mind, and you go th- through that over and over throughout the day. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing to do to meditate on the Word of God, and you can meditate on the love of God and get a deeper understanding of that. So these things will help us. You and I all need some more self-discipline, some more self-control. I want to remind you again, there are many, many things in your life that you are self-disciplined and you have self-control. And so don't beat yourself up. Let's just grow. I think if we could ever go to the Word of God and not use it as a hammer on ourselves, instead use it as a motivation to shift and change and just embrace it and not beat ourselves up, I think we'd grow so much more instead of spending four weeks bemoaning how awful we are. How about we start today changing that by practicing the Word of God? So let's pray together.